0: Welcome to The Landscape, your show about America's parks and public lands, and today, some roads and highways, too. I'm Aaron Weiss at the Center for Western Priorities in Denver.
1: And I'm Kate Gretzinger in Salt Lake City. Today, we're talking to nonfiction writer Ben Goldfarb about his new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. You may know Goldfarb's name from his debut bestseller, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter. But before we get to that conversation, let's do the news.
0: Well, since our last episode, the Bureau of Land Management released its Blueprint for 21st Century Outdoor Recreation. This is a document that is designed to charter a course for the agency's role as a provider of outdoor recreation opportunities. It's going to guide investments, outreach activities, partnerships, and programs designed to meet the need of both current and future outdoor recreation needs. It's really an exciting shift in how the Bureau of Land Management views its role in managing recreation on public lands. BLM has traditionally been more of a reactive agency. This is really taking a proactive approach towards recreation. So we're working on putting together a whole episode on the blueprint and how BLM approaches recreation. Look for that in the coming weeks.
1: Also, the Interior Department released a proposed rule last week to increase protections for designated special areas within the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, or the NPRA. This fulfills a commitment made by the Biden administration in March, following its approval of the massive Willow Oil and Gas Project. Interior also announced it's canceling all seven remaining oil and gas leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, which were issued under the Trump administration. The proposed rule would put 10.6 million acres of the NPRA off limits to future oil and gas development. The remainder of the 13 million acre special areas would be subject to strict safeguards requiring BLM to show that any development would result in minimal impacts to wildlife or ecosystems. Any future oil and gas development in the NPRA outside of those special areas would have to meet higher environmental standards thanks to a Biden administration plan for the reserve that was finalized last year. This news actually hit our inboxes right as we sat down to record this conversation, which is why you won't hear Aaron in the interview. Our guest today is Ben Goldfarb, an award-winning environmental journalist and author who covers wildlife conservation, marine science, and public lands management. His first book, Eager, The Surprising Secret Life of Beavers and Why They Matter, won the 2019 Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science Writing Award, and was listed on the Washington Post's 50 Notable Books of Nonfiction. His new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet, comes out today. Ben, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks a lot for having me, Kate. I really appreciate it.
1: Awesome. So many of our listeners are probably familiar with you from your fabulous book on the ecological benefits of beavers. How did you go from writing about beavers to
2: roads? Yeah, you know, in some ways, my interest in road ecology as a book topic precedes my interest in beavers. You know, my interest in road ecology really got started in, in the fall of 2013. Uh, I did this big sort of reporting road trip through the Yellowstone to Yukon uh conservation initiatives corridor, you know, and through, throughout the northern Rockies. And, and I was reporting on different habitat connectivity projects there. And, and one of them was the wildlife crossings on Highway 93, uh, north of north of Missoula. And I had the opportunity to get up on a wildlife crossing with uh, Marcel Hauser, who's a great uh, road ecologist at the Western Transportation Institute. And it was just so inspiring, you know, being on this uh, this kind of amazing piece of infrastructure uh, built for wild animals. And, and also, you know, trying to perceive the land and that infrastructure through their eyes. You know, I maybe mean, Marcel very eloquently talked about what it would take to make this, this bridge appe- more appealing to black bears and meadow voles and elk and the full suite of animals that might use it. So that challenge of, you know, sort of putting yourself in the, the hooves or, or paws of uh, another organism, another species, was was really intellectually interesting to me and and kind of got me started on this road ecology journey. And then, you know, beavers intervened for, uh, for many years, and of course, are a huge part of my life still. Um, But, uh, you know, when once the beaver book was published, I was able to circle back to the the road ecology book, which is something I'd I'd always wanted to write.
1: Yeah, I wonder if um, beavers are easier to sell than roads. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> you know they're easier to easier to write about in some ways. You know, definitely there were times when I working on this book when I, I missed uh, writing about a single rodent rather than like the entire history of human transportation. You know, but I, I mean I think I think the thing that sort of unites those two topics is that I mean to me the story of beavers is really the story of how the industrial fur trade permanently transformed North American landscapes and waterways, right? Often in ways we don't really think about, you know, I I think we often don't recognize Beaver trapping as as one of the seminal ecological catastrophes that we inflicted upon ecosystems because you know we we grew up you know with with degraded uh, lands and and waterways we grew up in the shadow of uh, of a you know a landscape transformed by beaver trapping and you know I think in kind of the same way roads are so ubiquitous and they're such a part of our daily lives that we we don't always recognize how transformative and, and you know, ecologically catastrophic they are, you know, we don't often think about them in the same terms as, you know, climate change or deforestation or poaching or all of these other, you know, environmental ills. But, you know, roads are, as I write about in the book, you know, one of the most uh, sort of transformative and catastrophic things that we do. So I think that, you know, the both, I think that both the road book and the beaver book are trying to accomplish the same thing, which is to reveal a hidden ecological catastrophe that, that uh, shaped our planet
1: right hidden in plain sight too right. so um, t- you mentioned the term road ecology a number of times what is road ecology and when did it really coalesce into its own scientific field
2: road ecology is the the science of how our transportation infrastructure interacts with and shapes the natural world and, you know, and what we do about it. Um, I think that's a really important part of ecology, as well as that it's a fundamentally applied science, uh, you know, that's trying to make the world a, a better and saner place in a, a lot of ways. And, you know, ecology. I mean, the term itself was, was coined in English in the 1990s by Richard Foreman, who's a landscape ecologist at Harvard. But, you know, the, the concept of studying roads' impacts on nature really goes back to the 1920s, you know, kind of the early days of the automobile. And, you know, as cars kind of entered uh, American landscapes and the American consciousness and became ubiquitous, uh, you know, there was sort of this wave of biologists noticing, you know, dead garter snakes and woodpeckers and ground squirrels, all of these different critters that were being being flattened and, uh, you know, started to kind of wring their hands about it a little bit. So, you know, even though road ecology as a kind of a formal discipline is, you know, only a few decades old, this notion of trying to understand and quantify the toll that cars take on nature, that, that goes back a century.
1: So we are the center for Western priorities. So even though your book covers um, the entire United States, as well as other countries and the um sort of road ecology implications there we're gonna focus on the west here a bit um what would you say the biggest threat that roads pose is to animals in the western united states
2: yeah it's a it's a it's a really good question i mean the, the threats are you know so many and there are so many sort of there are so many threats that are kind of unique to western landscapes in in some ways, especially you know public public lands roads you know there's the vast network of roads that spider webs you know the forest service lands and blm lands and you know and national parks as, as well um i mean i think that one you know really unique thing about the west compared to the east is that you know we we really have migratory wildlife uh in a way that the that the eastern us doesn't totally have uh you know specifically these migratory herds of mule deer elk pronghorn, uh, you know, that are that are moving really large distances across states like Wyoming and Colorado, where where I live, uh, because, of course, we have this, you know, this kind of harsher climate. You know, we're snow covered much of the year. You know, animals really have to move around to survive uh, and, you know, and, and roads are thus I think, uniquely catastrophic for, you know, for these these Western herds of, of migratory animals. You know, you could imagine that, uh, you know, a white-tailed deer in, in Virginia, uh, you know, if it gets stuck on one side of a highway, well, there's probably some food over there and, you know, he's going to be OK ultimately. But, you know, if, if a herd of a, a thousand pronghorn, you know, can't access its winter range because, you know, I-80 is in the way, I mean, that can and has, you know, that can lead to mass starvation. And that's that's happened, uh, you know, to, to some herds. In, in places like Wyoming and Idaho and, and elsewhere. Um, so you know I think that the that that migratory nature of our wildlife, which is sort of Im- imposed upon them by you know our, our landscapes and our climate, that makes roads especially uh, especially detrimental to, to western ungulates in particular.
1: So you did mention the different types of animals that are affected by roads, but I want you to go into that a little bit more because you know we think I think, as a driver of Western roads, you see roadkill, you, you notice the big roadkill, you notice the mule deer, the moose, the elk, um, but roads are affecting animals at every scale. Can you sort of say more about that and and, and talk maybe about the insects and the birds and um, that are being affected by these roads?
2: Yeah, certainly. It, you know, I mean, that's, that's kind of one of the challenges of, of, defining and practicing road ecology, I think, and obviously I'm, mean, you know, I'm a writer, not a road ecologist, but, you know, talking to road ecologists, you know, this, this comes up a lot is that, you know, the road's impacts are so diverse and varied and kind of manifold, you know, that it's really hard to wrap your head around. So, you know, for example, songbirds, you know, are, are really affected by noise pollution. You know, there's, there's a fantastic sort of series of experiments uh, that was done by, Boise State researchers about a decade ago the, the Phantom Road project, where they basically you know played the the noise of traffic um, traffic that was recorded in Glacier National Park. Uh, you know they played it through speakers in this kind of roadless. Forest in, in Idaho and and uh, songbirds migratory songbirds avoided that area and the ones who stuck around were actually in worse body condition because they constantly had to sort of look around for predators rather than listen for them um, because you know the the noise of predators was was uh, the sounds of predators were masked by all of this traffic noise that was being played through the speakers and as a result you know the the those songbirds weren't able to forage as much because they were so vigilant you know looking for predators constantly uh, because they. Could couldn't hear them. So that, you know, it's a good example of road noise being this huge ecological impact, and even a form of habitat loss for many species. You know, driving animals away from places they'd otherwise want to live uh, because you know all of the, the the sounds they they need to rely on are being masked by that kind of steady rumble of traffic. Um, or you know, or you think about I mean, like another kind of diverse impact. You think about fish. You know, you don't really we don't you know fish aren't necessarily the first. Species that come to mind you know when you think about road impacted organisms, but you know every time a stream crosses a road you know there 's a culvert there you know they 're one of those little corrugated pipes that the stream flows through, and you know so many of those culverts were either built badly to begin with or have kind of fallen into disrepair. And, you know, a, a faulty culvert can be an absolute barrier for you know migrating salmon in, in uh, you know, Washington, Oregon and California, as well as, you know, cutthroat and bull trout in the, the interior west. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're right. These, these roads are having impacts at, you know, every scale imaginable to every sort of taxonomic group imaginable. And it's, you know, I think it's in some ways it's really hard to wrap your head around the full sweep. Of, of impacts there
1: right and so coming off of what you said you sort of talked about the impact of road noise um, i want to bring up this question which is that we sort of think we think about the western u.s as rural and wild um, for the most part but that's not really the case from a road ecology perspective could you explain why that is
2: yeah i mean we well we certainly have it's because we have a lot of a lot of roads you know even in rural areas right i mean you think about i mean one of the, one of the challenges, I think, is is that, you know, our our mountain ranges and valleys tend to run north-south, right? And that's so that's generally the direction that wild animals are are migrating, you know, sort of in parallel with mountains and valleys, you know, as they move across sort of elevational gradients throughout the year. Uh and then we've got, you know, these I mean, we have lots of highways, of course, running east-west, but, you know, those there's, there's three giant interstates in particular, you know, going north to south, I-90, I-80, and I-70, uh, you know, each sort of bisecting uh, those, those migrations and, you know, at sort of perfect right angles, you know, so you've got, I mean, on I-90, you know, you've got, uh, you know, roads through, you know, Washington and and uh and North Idaho and Montana that are, you know, absolute barriers to grizzly bear movement for example in in Montana, you know, there's that there's a really famous map that uh, Montana Fish Wildlife and Parks put out of one grizzly bear that they'd collared uh that was trying to cross I-90 and you just see the bear's route bouncing like a ping pong ball off of I-90 something like 40 times as it as it looks for a, a place to cross. So, you know, you've got roads bisecting some of the wildest ecosystems with the the most megafauna in the country and then you know going south you've got I80 uh you know which is which is sort of doing catastrophic damage to all of those you know those migratory herds of mule deer and pronghorn and elk in Wyoming, and then you know you've got I seventy, uh, you know running through, running through the Southern Rockies in Colorado, and you know and kind of fatally fragmenting our our lynx population here. You know there are two hundred lynx in Colorado, and they're basically all on the south side of I seventy because it's you know it's it's uh, the Berlin Wall for wildlife, as some biologists have called it, right? So you know these are these are rural places, and yet they're funneling. You know thousands I mean tens of thousands of cars every day you know through some of the the wildest places uh, left in the country
1: right it was it's sort of an obvious fact once you state it, but it deserves to be emphasized, which is that th- we build roads in the places that animals naturally migrate um because that's they're the easiest places to traverse, so it's sort of this perfect storm of just like animal killing infrastructure in exactly the wrong place um and yeah exactly i you yeah. know i think uh, yeah, oh, sorry. No, go ahead.
2: sorry i was just going to say you know briefly that we yeah that you know that, i mean we tend you know our roads as you say tend to be built in the places that are easiest to build which is you know those sort of those low elevation valleys you know that you don't have to climb a mountain pass to get a highway through and obviously those you know those those valley bottoms are are uh, you know the most valuable habitats for for wildlife so there is i think this kind of inherent conflict or clash between habitat and infrastructure
1: speaking of infrastructure, um, you, you mentioned many of the big roads, but are there's this entire other network of roads um, weaving through the West. You mentioned in the book that the US has the country with the most miles of paved road, I think. I think I remember that correctly. Um, and that the Forest Service is actually one of the largest road owners and managers in the United States, if not the largest. Can you sort of, explain how that came to be and and what the Forest Service is doing with those roads and also the, the impact those roads have on wildlife currently.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, you know, the Forest Service is probably the largest road road manager in the world. There are you know nearly uh, four hundred thousand miles of forest roads in in uh, the United States, which means that you could you know you could go to the moon and most of the way back on on uh, Forest Service roads, which is which is pretty uh, amazing to think about. Uh, you know, the history of that is is pretty interesting. I mean, you know, those forest roads were built for all kinds of reasons um you know from i mean all it means all of all of the reasons that uh, all of all of the ways in which we use national forests today you know sort of justified roads you know early in the 20th century from firefighting was certainly a, you know a, a huge reason that roads were built to you know recreation to logging of course probably the most significant um driver of, of road road construction um you know in, in many cases it was actually private timber companies that were uh, that were building building those roads in the forests Service was essentially paying them to to do it, and you know, and then over time, you know, those roads were sort of uh, utilized and you know appropriated by recreationalists. Um, you know, and certainly I drive forest roads. You know, once a week, getting to trailheads and lakes and you know, and fishing holes and and so on. Um, so you know, forest forest service roads are sort of one of the most significant ways that we you know we access we access nature today. But you know, as as you alluded to, they're they're also tremendously impactful. You know, in in a lot of really really devastating ways. Um, you know, obviously they're not like you know a giant uh, eight lane interstate highway. You know, they're they're these kind of these humble dirt roads in most cases. And yet they have really significant effects on nature. I mean, they're on a few different levels. You know, there's, I mean, first, there's just the sort of physical, almost geological impact of all of these dirt roads, right, which, you know, are constantly eroding and kind of hemorrhaging sediment, uh, you know, and all of that sediment sort of runs down slope and, you know, ends up uh, smothering, smothering streams, including, you know, really important trout and salmon streams all over, all over the West. So there's that kind of erosional impact. Um, But, you know, probably the even more significant impact is just, you know, because forest roads are how we access nature. You know, they're pumping human beings into into wild places constantly, right? And obviously humans, you know, are bad for other species, you know, and, and there, are, there are many, many studies, you know, showing that really, really ro- really low road densities, you know, even even like a mile of road in a, you know, a single square mile of forest is enough to be really harmful to grizzly bears and elk and wolves and, uh, you know, and bull trout and all, all kinds of species just because it introduces that, that human impact. And, you know, humans bring guns, we bring noise, you know, we bring attractants that lure bears especially into conflict. It's, you know, our presence in 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 uh, in the backcountry is just uh, you know it's really really dangerous to uh, to you know basically all all species that require that that secure habitat and you know it's a, it's a difficult conflict because again I mean those you know those forest roads are and you know and park service roads as well or you know how we access some of the most spectacular places in the country and how you know I mean that's that's sort of where I learned to. You know, be in be in nature and and appreciate nature and and uh, you know I've had so many wonderful wildlife encounters that you know my car facilitated. So you know roads are sort of inextricable from the history of conservation, but you know they are really damaging from a conservation standpoint.
1: Totally. And I'd be remiss here if I didn't mention the Bureau of Land Management road network as well, which is um, many of them are retired oil and gas roads, and of course they're still being built to drill for oil and gas all over the West today. Um, I live in Utah and here there's a big fight um, down in sort of Southeast Utah over closing these roads called RS 2477 roads, which are historical roads, basically two tracks and um, groups like the Southern Utah wilderness Alliance are petitioning to close some of those roads because they're there. Um, many of them are redundant. They don't go anywhere new or interesting. They're just out there. Um, but the state really, um, doesn't want to see them closed for, for a number of reasons. I mean, mainly recreation and partially just uh, because they opposed conservation generally. But um, that's uh, just an aside, a little BLM um, talk here for our listeners. We'll get back to the book now. Um, how are animals across the Western US adapting to roads, um, if, if at all?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's pretty interesting. I mean, certainly, you know, there's, they're adapting on a couple of different levels. I mean, there's, you know, there's, there are behavioral adaptations, uh, right there, you know, there are some, some species that, uh, you know, certainly road avoiders, you know, like grizzly bears are sort of the classic example of a, of a, a species that, that is almost never crosses a road, even at very low levels of traffic, you um, you know, but there are also species that have kind of learned to take advantage of the road too. In 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 many ways, I mean, the road is you know sort of a source of uh, of of bounty if you are a scavenger. You know, roads are they're out there killing deer and elk and pronghorn. You know, these large animals that make really good meals for all, all kinds of uh, all kinds of species, including you know golden eagles and bald eagles. Uh, you know, certainly ravens and magpies. You know, which which uh, you know you can't see a a carcass on a western roadside without seeing a, a magpie or a raven on, on top of it, right? So you know there are lots of you know really intelligent scavengers that have learned to use the road uh, as a, a source of a, as a source of bounty as a as a resource. Um, but, of course, you know, the road is also potentially an ecological trap for that reason. You know, it's it's luring animals to the roadside, uh, you know, with the, the the promise of food and then and then killing them. You know, a golden eagle who's just, you know, feasted on venison on the side of the highway and then tries to take off, you know, doesn't uh, achieve liftoff very quickly. And, you know, is at risk of, of being hit. And, you know, and, and there's been great research by Hawk Watch International in, in Utah uh you know, showing that uh, you know the toll of roads on golden eagles and bald eagles is is enormous. You know, we're losing lots of lots of raptors to the road. So that's you know that's a, again one of the many one of the many ironies or tensions of roads is that they, you know they're they're yes they're resources for certain species, but they're also uh, a really dangerous resource and and uh, you know they can be they can in in many cases lure animals into these these really dangerous conflicts.
1: So you talk a lot about the science and history of perfecting wildlife crossings in the book. When did the U.S. start building wildlife crossings, and what spurred that or sort of prompted wildlife crossings to, to, to enter the mainstream
2: yeah, you know why, I mean, wildlife crossings really begin as as mostly a European technology. You know, it was France, Germany, Switzerland, Austria. You know, those were sort of the countries that uh, you know were, were the the leaders in the nineteen fifties, sixties, early early seventies. But you know, during the nineteen seventies, uh, you know, crossings do start to pop up again, mostly you know mostly in, in the in the American West, because you know we have these migratory herds of wildlife uh, that make it really easy in many cases to cite a wildlife crossing, you know, it's, you sort of think about like, you know, white tail deer in, you know, in, in the Northeast, I mean, they're just kind of everywhere all of the time. It's often hard to know where to put a wildlife crossing. Whereas, you know, if you have a, a herd of mule deer migrating along a very predictable route year after year after year and crossing the same Point on the same highway every year. Well, that creates this very conspicuous pile of carcasses that you know that makes it fairly easy to know where to put a crossing. So you know in the in the seventies, eighties, nineties, you know you start to see crossings pop up um, in Wyoming, Colorado, uh, you know other states with migratory wildlife at these kind of vehicle collision animal vehicle collision hotspots that are, you know, readily identifiable. And, you know, and, and most of those crossings are really geared as much or more towards human safety than they are towards conservation, right? I mean, obviously, nobody wants to hit, you know, a deer or an elk or, or a, a moose or any other large animal. Uh, those are, you know, incredibly uh, dangerous and expensive uh, collisions. You know, I mean, that the average deer collision now costs more than $9,000 to society and hospital bills and vehicle repairs and insurance costs and tow truck expenses and and so on. Um, so that's, you know, that that really motivated a lot of those early wildlife crossings and, and still, you know, motivates crossings to this day is that, that uh, you know, that really important uh, human safety connection.
1: So from a fiscal standpoint, you can really justify building these crossings in those spots where there are a lot of mule deer elk collisions. But what about crossings that don't have a, as much of a public safety uh, prerogative? How, how are those getting built? Because there are there are crossings being built that aren't necessarily there to save cars or people.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I think I think that's, and in some ways, I think that's the direction that that you know that the wildlife crossing movement is is going. Is is that you know, yes, it's important that we continue to address these you know these deer and elk hotspots that uh, you know are, are really dangerous. And you know, those crossings often pay for themselves very quickly. You know, there are lots of studies showing. You know, I mean, there are plenty of wildlife crossings out there that you know recoup their own construction costs in a decade or less, uh, just by you know preventing. Fifty collisions a year, or you know, or whatever whatever the the number is, but you know, I think that increasingly, you know, biologists and 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 you know, some transportation department engineers are you know are thinking about you know those really rare species that you know that might not be a you know a human a threat to human safety, but you know are are still really important from a conservation perspective. So you know, for example, this this spring I visited South Texas, you know, where there are a bunch of Crossings for ocelots, you know, and obviously ocelots are these, you know, these small cats that you know nobody's ever going to die uh, when they hit, um, but you know uh, are critically endangered, and and uh, you know really uh, roads are kind of the primary source of mortality for that population, and they desperately need wildlife crossings, and you know now they have some, and they certainly need more. Um, so you know that 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 sort of thing is is happening more and more. We're building it. We're building crossings for animals that are you know conservation concerns as well as. Or instead of uh, you know human safety concerns and you know I think that the kind of the the most prominent example of that now is is the Liberty Canyon crossing the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing outside of Los Angeles you know where. There, you know, as as, uh, most people probably know, because these have become the most famous wild animals in the country, practically, you know, there's this little population of of mountain lions that are kind of hemmed in by, you know, all of these enormous freeways, the 101 and the 405 and 118 uh, that are, you know, kind of constricting their movements and preventing these animals from dispersing out to find mates. And as a result, this population of mountain lions has become very inbred and is suffering genetic defects and, you know, would be doomed in the long term without a wildlife crossing. But, you know, fortunately, a crossing is being built for them. This gigantic overpass, the largest wildlife crossing in the country, will be done by 2025. And, you know, that structure is going to cost $90 million when, when all is said and done, which is, you know, which is many times the the cost of a, the average wildlife crossing. But because it's such a, you know, a gigantic freeway. Um, you know, it just recalls for, you know, an enormous, really well-engineered crossing structure. And, you know, and that, and because, you know, there's no, there's not really a human safety connection there, right? There, you know, there's just a, there's a handful of mountain lines; They very rarely cause collisions. You know, animals basically never try to cross those highways at all because they're so busy. Um, so there's not really a, a, you know, a roadkill issue there. That's really a genetic connectivity issue. Um, I mean, as a result, it's, you know, it's hard to justify from a kind of a taxpayer public funding standpoint. So most of that, most of that money uh, was raised through private philanthropy. Um, and, you know, I think we're going to see more of that as well. You know, private, I mean, certainly, you know, there, I'm sure we'll end up talking about this, but, you know, but obviously federal and state transportation budgets are including more and more funding for wildlife crossings. But, you know, I think we're also going to see more private money coming to the table to build some of these crossings that, you know, are critical from a conservation perspective, but might not justify their own costs from a, a roadkill prevention perspective.
1: Totally. Um, Another thing that I was really interested in reading about that example is how they're trying to engineer this crossing so that all different types of animals can use it because it will be the only crossing over that highway. Um, And animals really prefer different types of crossings. Could you sort of tell us about the different types of crossings you came across in your research and um, maybe from like a spectrum of like smallest, cheapest to like Obviously, the this bridge in California being the most expensive and most um de- complex design.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's you know, I think I think you raise a really important point, right? Which is that you know every I mean every species has slightly has fills a different niche and has slightly different crossing requirements as a as a result. You know, it, one of the prototypical examples of that uh, are pronghorn. You know, pronghorn are these incredibly you know they have incredible vision. They're amazingly far sighted. Of course, they're the fastest land a- land animals in uh, in North America, uh, and you know as a result they really prefer to be out in the open where they can you know they can watch out for you know wolves and uh, other other predators. Uh, and so you know a, the pronghorn you know pronghorn don't really like going through you know little cramped underpasses. You know the same underpass that a mule deer would would happily use you know might not be uh, appropriate for a pronghorn. You know they really prefer these kind of Bigger open span bridges, and you know, at, at places like Trappers Point in Wyoming, that was what engineers built, you know, to to encourage uh, the movement of this animal that again really prefers to be out in the open. You know, grizzly bears are are kind of the same way. They they also seem to prefer overpasses. Um, you know, but you know, at the other end of the spectrum, you've got you know you've got uh, all of these little uh, animals as well that that need to you know that need to cross cross roads. You know, um, I mean, some of the prototypical examples are are uh, amphibians. You know, especially with you know all these frogs and salamanders that uh, you know that that migrate and mass on you know on on warm damp spring nights you know moving from their kind of upland habitat to their their uh, their their breeding ponds and you know often again because roads tend to follow water you know they they end up uh, crossing roads along the way and, and dying and mass uh, and you know there are some great examples of uh, amphibian tunnels out there uh, you know these little humble. Passages that might only be a couple feet wide, you know, going under the pavement that uh, you know you'd you'd probably uh, never notice, you know, if you weren't if you weren't looking for them. But you know, in, in the right circumstances, uh, you know, can be can be really effective. So that's that's kind of yeah, one of the exciting things about wildlife crossings, I think, is just thinking about you know the different the different needs of all of these different critters that uh, you know are are encountering are encountering our road infrastructure every day. And, you know, and, and uh, each has a different sort of requirement. And, you know, I I mean, I think that one other, one other point that I'll, I'll make about this too, is that, you know, we're, we're also, I mean, it's, it's interesting to think, yes, you know, we're building all of these new sort of Sweden, generous crossings, like the, you know, the Liberty Canyon crossing, but there's also, there's so much existing infrastructure out there that animals could be using. You know, we have, something like 2 million culverts uh, in the United States. And, you know, even though many of those block fish passage, you know, a lot of them could be used to facilitate terrestrial animal passage. You know, I mean, all of these animals are sort of walking along stream corridors every night and, uh, you know, they bump into culverts and culverts are a great way to get under a road safely. So, you know, doing simple things like adding a little metal shelf along the wall of a culvert so that, you know, a bobcat, for example, can walk along that shelf without, you know, getting his paws wet. Um, I mean, you know, those sorts of cheap uh, inconspicuous retrofits to existing infrastructure uh, can be a a really powerful way of, of uh, making our our road network safer.
1: So I was surprised to read in your book that there are actually some benefits of roads to wildlife. You did mention roadkill earlier, which, um, is a benefit to scavengers like bir- like like um, crows and ravens. What are some of the other animals and insects that actually benefit from roads um, for either habitat or food?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, insects are a really good one. Uh, in that, you know, we've, I mean, we've we've sort of carved up so much insect habitat in this country, you know, so much so much historic prairie has become, you know, agricultural monoculture or, you know, or, or subdivisions or other forms of development, you know, and, and those Strips of of roadside prairie, you know, are some of the last kind of uncultivated places on the landscape. in In you know, in many states, you know, in the Midwest especially, you know, roads are actually. And it's funny to we, you know, we have we're in the West, you know, we're we're blessed with so much public land, obviously, but you know, in the Midwest, roadsides are actually the largest form of public land. And you know, and as a result, they're you know, they're habitat for species like like monarch butterfly. But you know, just as with golden eagles, you know road kills or or, uh, roadsides are are dangerous places to be a a wild animal, you know, and, and, uh, yes, I mean, certainly there are, you know, lots of, uh, Monarch larvae and caterpillars being produced by, uh, you know, by by roadside milkweeds uh, around the country, but you know there are also millions of monarch butterflies who are killed by cars. Um, so you know we're we're creating habitats for these animals along roadsides, and roads are furnishing those those you know, kind of wild, unkempt spaces in in in, uh, in many cases. Um, but you know, as always, you know the roadside is a is a dangerous place to live, and you know if if we're going to use you, if we're going to use roadsides as wildlife habitats, you know, we have to manage them in, you know, in, in, uh, in intelligent ways. We can't just kind of like let them go, I think, because, you know, because they are potentially dangerous habitats and ecological traps.
1: Right. They sort of draw the insects in, but maybe at the cost of their life. So, um, it's, I feel, it's, it seems like while there are benefits to roads, but roads are still kind of terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: I think that's a, I think that's a good, a good way of putting it. I mean, I certainly, on, you know, on, on balance, they're terrible. Um, you know, I mean, I do think that, you know, that ultimately in the case of monarch butterflies, you know, I mean, there's just such a need for milkweed on the landscape that, you know, roadsides are sources of milkweed and, you know, and that their their benefits outweigh their costs for that reason. But at the same time, you know, if you said, hey, you can, you know, you can either, you know, reclaim a square mile of prairie or, you know, plant milkweeds along a mile of road, I'd say, you know, give me the prairie away from the road because that's, you know, that's the that's the safer, more productive habitat.
1: Sure, like make every farmer in the Midwest plant half an acre of milkweed. I mean, it's yeah. never gonna happen, but it would be better than a yeah, road. I think I think so. <laughs> um, but roads are here and they're what we've got. So I wanted to ask, um, sort of touching on this point we talked about earlier with Forest Service Roads, would do you know if if the no- number of miles of road in the United States is currently decreasing or increasing or about steady at this point?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's definitely increasing. Um, it's not increasing dramatically, especially compared to other countries, you know, like Nepal or India or Kenya, you know, countries that are still very actively building new highways and developing their road networks. You know, we're we're mostly maintaining what we have, but you know, we're also, I mean, we're adding a lot of, you know, we're not we're not building giant new interstates, but you know, we are we're widening existing existing roads in many places, and you know, we're we're building lots of you know lots of new residential roads as well. I mean, obviously, you know, in I forget exactly what this what the statistic is, but you know, in the West we lose what a football field of of habitat, you know, every hour or something like that um and you know most of that land is being lost to to subdivisions and you know and and uh, and and housing and other forms of development and you know of course a new subdivision requires new roads right so we're you know we're we're not building giant new highways but you know we're we're building new residential roads all of the all of the time and you know last year i remember I was talking to a, a, a wildlife biologist in, in New Mexico um, who was, you know, sort of looking at animal movements uh, outside of Albuquerque, uh, and he, you know, he showed me this satellite image of a, of a this, this giant series of new, of planned new subdivisions, and, you know, none of the houses had been built yet. It was just miles and miles of roads, you know, sort of sp- spider webbing out into, you know, what had previously been sagebrush. Uh, And uh, it was, you know, it was, it was pretty sobering, because you recognize that, uh, you know, that roads are sort of at the root of all of this, uh, you know, land conversion and and habitat loss that uh, is happening in the West constantly.
1: Right, yet another argument for density, right? Right, exactly. (laughs) We've got the climate argument, which um, would make people travel less um, and climate or Produce less greenhouse gases, but um, also we can save the the sage grouse, <laughs> etc. So you mentioned developing countries briefly. What is the outlook there in terms of road development? Um, I think you featured Brazil um, in one of the later chapters in the book. What 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 is happening there, and why should we be concerned?
2: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. I mean, I mean, certainly the outlook is that uh, you know, a lot more roads are coming. Um, you know, there's something like 15 million miles of of new new paved roads alone, um, you know, slated to be built in uh, on this planet by by the middle of this century. Uh, and you know, most of those are are going to be in right, those, you know, those those developing countries that don't have a kind of a, a fully formed highway system, um, you know, as as we do uh here in the in the US. And and you know it's it's uh, it's it's a it's a challenge because you know on one hand i mean certainly you know those those new roads are important for human flourishing you know they they get people you know they get they get farmers crops to market they get you know they get kids to school they get uh, you know they get people to hospitals right I, you know it's there's something i mean i think that i think that's saying you know no development in in uh you know in the developing world altogether is is you know it's both kind of uh i mean it's it's unrealistic and it's i think it's you know profoundly unjust uh in a in a sense um but you know at the same time i mean of course all of those or many of those roads you know are are going through you know, large, relatively intact swaths of of critical habitat for tigers and elephants and gorillas and you know all, all of the kind of the the disappearing charismatic megafauna on this on this planet. Uh, so you know, I think I think that's you know that's sort of where road ecology is is going now, and you know what it, what it can show us in a lot of ways is is you know okay if if you know some of this development to this, this infrastructural development is, you know, unavoidable and even desirable from, you know, a a human welfare standpoint, how do we, how do we do it in the least disastrous way possible? You know, how do we avoid those critical habitats when we can? Uh, You know, how do we, how do we build wildlife crossings that preserve movement uh, for species when we, you know, when, when roads, you know, can't be rerouted or or prevented altogether? Uh, You know, that's, that's what road ecology is, is, Telling us, and, and, you know, there are some fantastic examples out there uh, of, you know, of of incredible innovation uh, in the developing world. You know, one of the, one of the examples that I I mentioned briefly in the book is, is uh, this highway that was built in India through a tiger sanctuary. And, and, you know, there they actually elevated the road many miles of this highway on these, you know, these giant concrete pillars so that, you know, the road lies well above the landscape and the animals can just walk back and forth under the road, you know, basically undisturbed. And, you know, that's, I mean, that's a, that's a more innovative, progressive, radical solution to, you know, to the problem than anything we've done in in North America. So, you know, there's, there's certainly a lot that we can learn from the ways that, uh, you know, that, that countries are, are building out their own infrastructure. That
1: made me think of um, a road in Louisiana that I drove once over a swamp that was like completely elevated and on pillars. And I didn't even think about the ecological implications, but it's certainly fun to drive on those roads.
2: (laughs) Right. you know, and, and that's, I mean, that's proof that we're like, we're capable of doing that sort of thing. Right. And we do, you know, we, I mean, we do it all the time, uh, you know, to get over water. I mean, you know, think about like some of the, like the causeway that goes to the Florida Keys, you know, I mean, just many miles up on, up on pillars. There's no reason that we couldn't, you know, do that uh, in the American West for the sake of wildlife.
1: Totally. So, Ben, your book on beavers was super popular. Did it spur any policy action or activism that you know of? in and- similarly, are, are there any actions or sort of uh, policies that you hope might come a- about as a result of this book?
2: Well, thanks for saying, um, thanks for, thanks for mentioning the Beaver book and, and for saying, for saying uh, a nice thing about it. I mean, yeah, I, th- I think that it, it, you know, it was incredibly impactful. It's been, it's been amazingly rewarding. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I, I know beyond a doubt that there are, you know, that there are, states and counties that have, you know, changed beaver policy in various ways, um, because they, because, you know, a, the right person at the right agency read that book, um, which is an incredibly gratifying feeling. Um, I mean, so, you know, certainly there's, there's a, there's an official response, and there's also an individual response that's that's really rewarding. You know, I, I mean, I gave a I gave a talk uh, in Utah uh, a few years ago, and afterwards, you know, a, a rancher came up to me and said, "Hey, I read your book, and I you know stopped killing the beavers in my ditches, and I bought copies for some of my buddies, and they stopped killing their beavers." And it's like, wow! I mean, what a what a, an incredibly you know gratifying, uh, you know, rewarding feeling that 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 is to know that there are you know there are beavers out there today, and and uh, you know acres of wetland habitat created that you know that exist, uh, you know, thanks to this this thing that I wrote. I mean, that's all, all you can ever possibly ask for as an environmental journalist. And you know, I, I hope that this book is similarly uh, impactful. I mean, I think it's you know it's it's a difficult, it's it's a more difficult problem to influence i think as a writer i mean the thing you know the thing about beavers is that they're you know in some ways, they're a fairly local issue. Uh, you know, their their fate is controlled by landowners who you know who decide not to kill the beavers in their in their ditches, for example, or you know, or or the county commissions or town councils, you know, who decide to you know put in a non lethal beaver deceiver at a culvert instead of uh, you know trapping out those beavers. Right. That you know, beaver policy is generally being made at a kind of a local level that is relatively easy to influence, whereas it's it's, you know, it's sort of harder to imagine that, you know, anything I write is going to make a gigantic splash at, you know, the Federal Highway Administration, right? Uh, because, you know, transportation or the, or the Forest Service, you know, transportation is governed by these, you know, these, these gigantic agencies um, that, you know, are just uh, very difficult to to sway one one way or the other but you know at the same time i mean you know road a lot a, a lot in the road ecology world you know can be and has been accomplished by grassroots activism you know i mean i mean one great example of that is is uh, teton county in wyoming you know which thanks to this wonderful activist campaign basically voted to tax itself to pay for new wildlife crossings, you know, which is, I think, the first time that that sort of thing had had happened. Um, So, you know, even if even if the book is, you know, not going to, uh, you know, sway the the halls of power in Washington, D.C., you know, I'd I'd like to imagine that it could inspire some grassroots activism that that could lead to new wildlife crossings and save some save some animal lives.
1: Totally. Well, that leads perfectly into my final question here, which is that you talk about lots of local groups and organizations in the book that are working to make roads safer for animals. Do you have advice for folks who are looking to get involved in similar work on a local level?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great, great question. Um, I mean, you know, one one chapter of the book um, deals with this sort of this the rise of citizen science in in uh, in road ecology. Uh, you know the fact that look we're you know we're all out there driving around noticing roadkill. I mean that's all that's all potential data. Uh, you know and I I spent uh, you know I spent a day in in Montana uh, on this kind of volunteer roadkill data collection bike ride. Uh, you know riding up and down uh, highway highway ninety three in the in the bitterroot. Uh, you know just quantifying uh, you know dead deer and red tailed hawks and uh you know other 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 species and you know it was it was uh yeah it was obviously sad, but it was also illuminating and you know and and that data was part of a a project being done by adventure scientists to uh you know to kind of uh, just you know provide another layer of information to uh you know state transportation and wildlife agencies as they you know figure out where to put new fences or wildlife crossings uh so you know and, and there i mean there are lots of great uh, you know great case studies out there where you know that sort of volunteer collected data really did lead to uh you know new new wildlife crossings and other, uh, other, other projects, you know, in California, that's happened, that's, that's happened in British Columbia and elsewhere. And, you know, at this point there, I mean, there are so many of these different projects uh, out there, uh, you know, collecting that data and and making good use of it and kind of redeeming this ceaseless death through the harvesting of information. Um, So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage people to look for an opportunity to participate in the science of road ecology.
1: Well, we'll leave it at that today. Ben Goldfarb, author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Thank you so much for your important work and for your time today.
2: Thanks a lot, kid. Appreciate the great questions.
1: Our good news today comes from my former hometown of Bluff, Utah, gateway to Bears Ears National Monument, where the Wildlands Conservancy and other donors purchased 320 acres of private land in Cottonwood Wash to help protect access to Bears Ears. The purchase will create a cultural conservation easement on behalf of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition, in which no development can occur. Lower Cottonwood Wash contains several cliff dwellings and rock art panels, and it's worth a visit if you find yourself down in southeast Utah.
0: Well, that is it for today's episode. Kate, thank you for that interview with Ben. I'm really sorry that I missed it. Let us know what you think of these episodes, will you? You can reach us at podcast at westernpriorities.org. Also, follow us, TikTok, Instagram, X, whatever it's called today. Uh, and leave us a review, please. If you have a second, that always helps other Public Lands fans find us.
1: Thanks again to Ben Goldfarb for his excellent writing and for chatting with us today. And thank you for listening to The Landscape.